The following audio is via a Skype call. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. I'm Gary Mans. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. We are Manson Mitchell in your ears for the hour and mighty glad to have you with us of a Friday. Of course, at the board, we have our audio wizard, our producer. He is bad boy Benny Mathers at the board. Senor, how are you doing today? Doing very well. Happy Friday to my family of Floridians. Family oh, of yeah, Floridians. We like that. We like well, let's go. We can run a quick inventory here, and I do mean quick. This is a very partial inventory. Roger Stone, oh, the yeah. dirtiest of dirty tricksters, has been indicted. He was arrested today. Yeah, a little beating on the door there. Hey, up yeah, behind. they had a SWAT team in New yeah. York ready to, to uh, mm-hmm. take the materials they think are relevant to the case per the Mueller investigation. So that's going on. We also have a partial grounding at LaGuardia. So if any of you were planning to be in New York by way of flying into LaGuardia, you might want to look into that because that's not happening. It's not a total shutdown, but it's certainly a a disruption of service. That's for sure. Meanwhile, Suzanne and I reside. We do our show from Seattle. Bless all you folks out in Puget Sound. We reside in Sarasota, Florida. And just yesterday, the freshly appointed Secretary of State under Governor Ron DeSantis, the new governor, he had to quit because there were photos surfacing from 2005 in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina of a Halloween party in 2005. And the gentleman who was just appointed Secretary of State for Florida was in blackface wearing a dress. He had fake breasts and some dangly earrings and the the makeup, you know, to make him look like, and even had a sign on him saying Katrina victim. Survivor. Survivor. Katrina survivor. And that didn't go over so well once once it surfaced. So that was sent to the governor's office. And very promptly, the newly appointed secretary of state in Florida resigned the position, saying he had nothing to add to the discussion. And just like that, we're in need of a new secretary of state. How's your morning going? <laughs> this is this is really amazing times we live in. And accordingly, Suzanne and I have booked a two-part interview. You know, Suzanne, this reminds me of Ed Sullivan bringing the Beatles on two weeks in a row in February of 1964, you know, signing them up, making sure we get them booked because this is hot stuff. We've also, got somebody booked for two weeks that we are thoroughly excited about. He has written a book. His name is Patrick M. Andendahl. A name that if you don't know it now, you're going to know it via Manson Mitchell and you'll be hearing more from him because he is a prolific writer and a very astute observer of social and especially political scenes going on around the world. And with noteworthy acerbity, he addresses issues currently going on here in the United States of America. He has a really fresh, and some would say, yeah, fresh in more ways than one, perspective on American political life. We're delighted to have him today as well as next Friday. We've been going through his book, wonderful book. Called Deliverance from Stupid Party Land, How to Eradicate the Destructive Forces Destroying American Democracy. And we got a lot of that to talk about today, Gary. Why don't you read the uh, mad props today and let's bring this man on. Let's do it. Patrick Andendahl has always had an interest in politics and being multicultural, he views issues from a more international perspective. In 2004, five days before the election, he flew to Cleveland and pitched in to help with the political process. What he discovered was the dissolution of the American dream, which he writes about in his book, 
stupid party, educated at English boarding schools from the age of seven. Andendal went on to graduate from Lansing College. He started by sometimes working three jobs at once, trainee underwriter slash claim broker at Lloyd's of London, his own one-man cleaning company, cleaning the very offices of a reinsurance company he would transact business at, plus doing seasonal work on various farms. Having made some windfall profits by borrowing money in order to be a quote-unquote stag to take advantage of opportunities created by Margaret Thatcher's denationalization policies of the mid-1980s, Mr. Andendahl evolved into an entrepreneur with a core specialty in reinsurance in London and New York, where he looks for patterns in numbers. Self-employed in a field not normally conducive to self-employment, he is able to remain in control, juggle different jobs, travel, and pursue his various interests. Ending up in New York via romance in the African bush, Patrick Andendahl now lives on Long Island with his wife, two children, and two dogs. And because he has a little spare time, he's going to spend the balance of this hour with Manson Mitchell. Welcome, Mr. Andendahl. We're delighted to have you with us. Good afternoon, and thank you very much for that introduction and having me on your show. I think about all that's going on. I really wanted to write a lot of this on index cards, and I go, oh, it's such a buffet. I can recite it almost from memory. And I, granted, there are some items on the table missing because this is a partial list. But, Patrick, let me start by mentioning LaGuardia has this partial grounding going on, interfering with air travel. What is going on with the air traffic controllers is a tragedy waiting to happen. These folks are working 10-hour days, six days a week for no pay, and they're having to put food on their family's table by taking extra jobs with what little free time they have, like driving Uber or waiting on tables. We have Roger Stone arrested and indicted today. We have Paul Manafort back in court, and the Mueller people are saying he gets no breaks from us, having lied to us in the course of this investigation. So there's a man who could well die in prison. We have Donald Trump disavowing any knowledge of any of this. It, it's a wild goose chase. It's a witch hunt, as he's constantly saying. We have an economy which, ironically, though you may be able to explain it better than me, Patrick, there I look here, I mean, it's about 200 points north. The Dow is doing fine in the middle of all of this and all of these investigations. We have Donald Trump making noises about wanting to leave NATO we have climate change, et cetera, et cetera. And all of this convoluted in explanation by guest star Rudy Giuliani on top of everything else. So what I want to ask you, Patrick Andendahl, is this. Painting on your own canvas, say what you will, what is happening to the United States of America? <laughs> well, it's been a long time coming. <laughs> um, I think it's a natural evolution of what's been happening for the last I don't know, since the 1950s. Um, uh, you know, I think, I think the downhill slope that America's been on probably started with the assassination of Kennedy. Uh, this is the third book I've written. Uh, the first book was really to deal with what, how the stupid party came about between the years 2000 and 2014. And then um, I wrote a second book where I started focusing on the Bush family, which really allowed me to investigate certain patterns that happened you know, between 1950 and 2000, sort of establishing um, through the eyes through the eyes of the Bush dynasty exactly how we sort of got to this spot. And this third book 
is sort of designed to by, almost bypass the situation we're in right today where, um, you know, Trump is sucking all the oxygen out of the room. To such an extent, you can't have an intelligent conversation about anything. You just mentioned a whole slew of stuff, climate change, uh, economics, and all the rest. Um, you can't actually have an intelligent conversation without any of those issues. And remember, Americans' economic problems or issues, uh, most of these things are very easy to solve. Uh, many of the things buttressing America, America's problems is democracy are also very easy to solve. Um, but you can't have those conversations because we've got somebody who is sort of a, a, a Putin patsy, as it were. I mean, that's how far we've devolved. And you've got Republicans in Congress and, uh, and Trump enablers who are not remotely interested in charges of collusion or the fact that uh, he's acting in the best interests of our, of our uh, foreign enemies. Um, so, so that's the, the theory of this book. And this third book is sort of due to take a, a time frame between 2016 and through 2025. So that and by that point in time, one way or another, Trump will be in our rearview mirror. Clearly, for us, to, to, for, this, for the American uh, society to recover from this, there must be consequences. People, a lot of people must go to jail. This cannot be a Richard Nixon scenario where Richard Nixon was pardoned, rightly or wrongly. I don't have a problem with not being pardoned, I mean, but he was, he was not sent to jail. And I don't really have a problem with that. But I think if Trump does not end up going to jail, and I think if certain, maybe even Republican leaders in Congress do not suffer massive consequences for helping to cover up this situation, I, you know, it's a pretty grim diagnosis or prognosis for American society. Okay. Well, yeah, I'd say, yeah, we, we say okay, and here we are waist deep in the Big Muddy, which is a phrase from another era, the Vietnam War era. I look, you know, when you talk about the day that John Fitzgerald Kennedy was assassinated, I was nine years old. I remember it like it was yesterday. I remember it was about the only time I can think of in my entire life that even out in public, adults did not want to meet each other's gaze. Everyone had a private grief. They had their own shock to deal with. And I can remember many a time my mother saying, it seems like the day that man died, the world went crazy. But when we talk about the, the crazy, when we talk about things having, having gotten so desperate, it doesn't turn on a dime, Patrick. It doesn't happen overnight. And especially, it seems to me anyway, where we are is the product of certain people with certain intentions playing the long game. I think of Steve Bannon, for example. Now, there's a guy that had a strategy. He probably can't believe his good fortune in seeing all of this play out. Well, what, and what's really terrifying about Steve Bannon and his supporters, I know they're trying to go in hiding right now, but the Mercer family and the money behind and the, that billionaire family live on Long Island. And there was the financial support they'd given to the Republican Party, to Cambridge Analytica and backwards first WikiLeaks and, and all the rest. And now tying in with links with, with nationalists and white supremacists in the UK and in Europe. And if you take a country which is actually in worse shape than America when it comes to the destruction of democracy, it would be Hungary and Orban there. And you see how he's taken over Hungary without, um, by, that, by not breaking any laws, by the way. Everything he's done in Hungary has been legal. But right now he has 80% of... The, the news outlets on his side. All of his industries are run by his puppets, his oligarchs, and all the rest. 
And because of the power vacuum happening in Europe right now, in the next two or three months, it's going to be rather scary because you've got Brexit, which probably won't happen, but it's still England and Britain in a very confused state of mind and not able to show any leadership at all. You've got Macron, who's been massively undermined, some of it is his own fault, his own arrogance, but he's still, a, you know, a, should be a rock of stability. And you've got Merkel, um, who is sort of becoming less relevant because she's, been, she's going to stand down in three or whatever it is, two or three years' time. So you've got this massive vacuum in Europe, and you've got these elections coming up in two or three months, and you've got people, the power brokers that be, you've got Hungary and maybe tying in with certain others, you know, Austria and, and Italy and the leaders of those countries. And the terrifying thing is, if they go sort of more nationalist, more supremacist, based upon forces that have been unleashed by Bannon and Robert Mercer here in the United States, and found a home in Europe through uh, Nigel Farage, who I write about in my book, too, because I think Americans need to understand how Brexit happened and some of the conspiracies involved in that and some of the connections between Nigel Farage and Trump and the administration. You have to ask, why would Nigel Farage, and this is why I started being uh, really interested in this, why would he go and campaign for uh, that guy, um, Roger, not Roger Moore, um, the senator to be child molester, Roy Moore, in Alabama. Why would Nigel Farage, this sort of supposed sort of English gentleman who likes tea and biscuits, why would he, and doesn't, and, uh, why would he go and campaign for Roy Moore? And so that just, investigating that just was pretty damn scary as to what's happening on the big picture, how Trumpism has been unleashed now in really seeing Europe devolving to the, to the benefit of Russia the weakening of NATO, and everything that's happening now is part of Putin's agenda. And, and as I said, you know, America still has some safety nets to prevent us going down the route where Hungary. Hungary has no such safety net. The courts have been taken over, the press has been taken over, business has been taken over. I don't see Hungary, how Hungary gets rid of Orban via democracy. Still in America, it's still functioning. There's still a chance. Uh, that we can rebound from where we are at at this point in time. Well, you know, I'm I'm glad that you're sounding a hopeful note about rebounding, and um, you know, I see that in some of the new senator, uh, the new uh, Congress people who have come on board in the um, in the House, where we're getting some younger, newer people in there, and a lot of what seems to be on the other side. Uh, is the old boys club a lot of old white men who have been running things for a long time with uh, with money one of the things that we wanted to explore a little bit go a little bit deeper with was this whole idea uh, starting with you know Roger Stone and WikiLeaks and Facebook and the uh, the fake news you, you write about the fake news there and how that has been used to the advantage uh, of people. There's so much more fake news going on on the right than going on on the left. It's so out of balance. And that was, you know, Roger Ailes' claim to fame. I'm going to start a company and, you know, we're just going to we're just going to say it the way we want it to be. Not the way it actually is, though. Well, and I want, talk, why don't you well, talk about fake news a little bit? Well, talking about fake news, um, it's not all bad. I mean, think about it. Fake news and or, it's come about in the last five to ten years. And um, it's a result of people being manipulated, and you say on the right, and the reason why, that's just science. I mean, the, 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 the conservative brain 
tends to be more fearful, whatever it is, that's bigger in their brain. So it's easier to incite a fearful person. It's easier to incite a, a bigot or a racist or whatever, and whatever else they might fear, a sexist, a misogynist or whatever. Whatever their fears are, it's quite easy to, um, to, get the, to trigger those events. Now, to be fair to everybody, um, in the electorate in 2016, this is a disease, a disease of fake news, where there was no, we, we had no knowledge of it. At the time, we had no knowledge of really what the WikiLeaks, in my, in my opinion, WikiLeaks has, WikiLeaks has become a sort of a part of the Russian propaganda campaign. I didn't, I wouldn't have known that three or four years ago. Um, and Facebook and all that, we didn't realize what Facebook's involvement was for Cambridge Analytica. We did not know, understand what Cambridge Analytica was capable of doing back in 2016. You'd have to be really ahead of the curve, you know, top 0.1% of population to have any comprehension of these issues. So there was, because there was no knowledge of what could be done, how easy it was to manipulate people, there was no, no immunity, there's no built-in immunity, there was no built-in safety net. So everybody, everybody to a large extent, was primed to be, uh, to be motivated to maybe act against their best interests or to be made irate, to be triggered in such a fashion. It's just science. Now we're become, we are educating ourselves as a society. You know, uh, Facebook has been um, investigated thoroughly. I and mean, People at Cambridge Analytica, I'm sure if they're not already in jail, they will be going to jail. And we're beginning to understand the importance of... Um, um, of critical thinking, of being able to evaluate what is fact and what is not fact. I mean, I've been on a bunch of radio shows, on even progressive radio shows, and they're not doing an awful lot of service to society. Most of them, when the moment you get talking about conspiracy theories and get too deeply involved in that, you're sort of creating this false equivalence where the left is almost as crazy as the right. Um, and I think that's, and I think that's sort of sort of the thing. When when it, when we all go down this road of into madcap theories, um, you sort of, like what one, one person who was a so-called progressive started attacking the Clinton Foundation because they only spent, what it, he quoted, something like 10% of their funds on charity, which is a terrible distortion of the facts. And all, all people have to do if they want to figure out if the Clinton Foundation was legitimate or not, you just, invest, you just go online and investigate it. You go to, you know, go to Snopes, you go to the fact-checking organizations, you go to their website and see how they're giving their money away. So what's so dangerous about attacking the Clinton Foundation, whether you like the Clintons or not, is that when, if, you, if you're criticizing that with false news, when the fact of the matter is when the Trump charity, which is clearly a fraudulent charity, <laughs> there's no doubt about it. So, and if you, so if you criticize one, then suddenly the Trump charity thing does, it's no big deal. What's the big deal about Trump committing a crime? Because Clinton Foundation creates a crime. So you, people have to learn the difference between the... You know, like, uh, charities are vetted by charity vetting agencies. And, you know, the Clinton Foundation got top marks for all of that. And, yes, they, they, give, they give grants in a different manner from a traditional charity. That's why, that's why some people can rig the numbers and say they only give 10% to charity, which is absolute nonsense. I think the number is actually 86% or something. But, you know, so people, might, when they see a number, when they see a statistic that's just absurd, like one, one thing this radio host quoted to me, and I haven't, in fact, haven't time to fact check it. Oh, only 5% of money goes to the Red Cross, goes to help people, whatever it is. And I'm sure it's not true. I haven't had a chance to fact check it. But, you know, when you hear a statistic like that, before taking it on board into your psych, you, it is now vital that you check using proper news sources. 
And I think it's very important to understand what a proper news source is. It's journalists who suffer consequences by telling a lie, by giving more things. They lose their jobs. I mean, if, if you, it's, it's very serious. When I remember when a perfectly good John, uh, I think it was, um, what's his name, John King on CNN, he made a mistake because he, he, even though he had two sources, they weren't perfect. He made a mistake three years ago. He very near, it was an honest mistake. And it's a weird set of circumstances that he made that mistake. He came very close to losing his job. So um, you have to go to websites where you have professional journalism. You can't just do a website with a person with an opinion. And I, I, I try, when I write my books, I try and avoid opinions at all costs. And when I do use an opinion, I'll say, this is an, a very, really, I'll say, this is my opinion. Because I think it's very important to stay away from opinions and try and stick with facts. There are websites also for uh, charitable giving where you can look that up. And years ago, I did that when I was asked to be the treasurer of a local charity. And I went online and I looked up what you were talking about with the Red Cross. And I don't think that it's 5%. But even 20 or 30 years ago, it was a it was a very small percentage of what they were taking in. Like half of it was going to marketing and administrative costs, and then half of it was going to charity at that time. So you do have to consult. I mean, I, I'm saying I, I haven't bothered to look at Red Cross, but when you right. see a number that just seems absurd, well, my point is, right. you have, before you bring it into your psyche, you and with Googling today and the Internet today, there's no excuse not to look into something. I mean, we do it all the time when we're in dinner conversation with friends. Somebody says it comes up with something that seems too good to be true or too bad to be true. You immediately get your iPhone up and you fact check people on the spot. Yes, yes, <laughs> you can do that. You can check and things people right do it on all the, spot. the time. And actually, what's but, happening in, in people critical thinking studies, you know, where people are talking and trying to talk intelligently about life and generally, people are actually probably more careful about what they say today in those sort of environments than they used to be 15 years ago. Because they know I they're going to get so. called on. They, they, people are going to get called when, they talk, when they're talking nonsense. Well, when we talk about false equivalence, it, it seems like there are, there are different ways to look at it. That much is true in the face of it. But it's how we interpret it as well, Patrick. Let me give you something. And this just occurred to me right now. If I am, and I've tried to wean myself away from it, believe me, as Mr. Trump would say, believe me. I've tried <laughs> to wean myself away from spontaneous debates with people who are dyed in the wool Republicans, who are Trumpsters and who absolutely will not hear him criticized. If they mention anything at all, anything that seems scandalous toward the left that is damning of Democrats, they might quote something from Breitbart, which is utter rubbish. It's manufactured rubbish. And in order to reinforce their case, they might say, well, no, it isn't only there. I also read in Newsmax. Yeah, no. so that so, they, you know, you obviously you can't engage people who use those news sources because those are not legitimate news sources. Newsmax isn't probably quite as bad as uh, Breitbart. But, you know, that's the real red flag uh, about whether you should bother to engage with people. What I've done in my, uh, about those subjects, what I've done in, in my, this, this book here, I've got a chapter called 101 Myths. So, and I've taken the myth that Breitbart and people and these and Republicans tend to believe in. And rather than having to debate it ad nauseum with people who won't listen anyway, I've got, I did 101 essays 
uh, on these myths. And they're a tool to people, my readers or your readers, your listeners or whatever, they're a tool to say, oh, is, was, 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 the, was Benghazi a problem? Were the emails a problem? Was this a problem? Um, whatever the issue was, um, you got it right there in this book, especially if you get the e-book version. You get the link and you read the, the facts. You don't, you don't have to try and reinvent the wheel all the time. I, I engage in social media and Facebook, and I've yet to find an intelligent Republican coming up with criticism or comments with substance. I keep saying, please provide substance. Please provide substance. I even have a $5 gift certificate to anybody who will, provide, will make a criticism of something I've written um, with sub, uh, not, not somebody else's opinion. I'm not going to defend other people's opinions, but something I've stated, and they got substantial criticism about it rather than just rude words. I'm, I'm, willing, I, I'm willing to pay for, and I'll post the comment I said, uh, on the blog, if, uh, my blog, blog. I'd post the comment and happily blog. And if ever I'm found making a mistake, I'll go right back and correct it. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just insane when you, try, when you try and interact with these people. Time and time again, you've, you're wasting your time. It's, a, it's just sucking all the oxygen out. So therefore, I've created this tool. I just, here's, here's the post on trickle-down economics. Here's the post on Obama's economic, economic performance of 2008. Here's why trickle-up trickle works better than trickle-down. I got the post. If you disagree with me, write something of substance, and I will happily engage. You know, Patrick, I think at, at the bottom of all of it is people's general laziness. If you can just tell me what I'm supposed to think, I'll be happy to think that. But for me to have to research, look it up, compare notes, see what the sources are. It takes a long time to re- It does. And the thing is, and when, you, when you try and engage and you rebut their argument, they never respond. They just change the subject. So you just like, it becomes a never-ending circular debate that goes nowhere. So I've learned that from years. But don't engage with somebody unless they can come back with substance to your point. Because they'll, be, they'll, they'll come up with somebody else's point. I'm not defending somebody else's point or, or some, some, some weird stuff. Because, yeah, sure, there are Democratic people who do say uh, stupid things or do bad things. Sure, that's, I, you know, that's fair enough. That's, well, you know, it's something I write. If you want to criticize it, fine, but you must do it with substance. Right, and and we're we're going about to take our our one and only break this hour. We've got one break so we can maximize our conversation with you. And where I want to go after the break is exactly what you're talking about, and that is give us the facts. We want the facts. We don't want your opinion. We want the facts. And you have some great facts at your fingertips, and I think there's more to be said about that after the break. So stay with us. We are talking to Patrick Andendahl, author of Deliverance from Stupid Party Land. After the break, we're going to get into the facts versus myth. And some things might surprise you, maybe not. But stay with us. We'll be back after this brief break. Thank you for listening to Manson Mitchell on Alternative Talk AM 1150. The preceding audio was via a Skype call. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to mansonmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. 
Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mance and Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world fame, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is ManceAndMitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Through the generous support of individuals like you, Trees for the Future has planted over 155 million trees and changed thousands of lives in the last 29 years. With your help, Trees for the Future continues to train thousands of impoverished farming families across Africa to plant their way out of poverty using an agroforestry method called the forest garden. Forest gardens consist of nearly 4,000 fast-growing fruit, nut, and timber trees that thrive alongside climate-appropriate crops surrounded by a living green fence. These forest gardens eliminate hunger in two years, increase household income over 400% in four years, and have changed landscapes from dry lands for monocropping to rich soils supporting over 20 varieties of crops and marketable products. Learn more about how you can be part of these efforts by visiting trees.org radio. That's trees.org radio. On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomed Patrick Andendahl, who makes his debut with us in the first of a two-part interview from his book, Deliverance from Stupid Party Land. On Saturday, Jody Levon, the happy medium, returns with great stories of communications from the other side, and she will be taking your calls. Bringing you fascinating talks since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk AM 1150. Alternative Talk 1150. We'll teach the world to live and to sing in perfect harmony. That'll happen soon. We have a very esteemed gentleman by the name of Patrick M. Andendahl. He is the author, among other books, and he's going to get the chance to mention them straight away. The book we're discussing today is called Deliverance from Stupid Party Land, and that bears some explanation, that subtitle. Deliverance from Stupid Party Land, How to Eradicate the Destructive Forces Destroying American Democracy. And Patrick's going to be joining us next week for further explication. This is a two-parter, and Patrick joins us as a first-time guest. We welcome him. Patrick, this idea, before we get to, in fact, before we even get to that, because the label stupid party has a history unto itself. You did not coin the term, but you used it, and you're using it to very good effect in your writing. I would love for you to tell our listeners, most of whom are going to be on the progressive side of the spectrum, to be sure, not 100%, but by and large, we have a progressive audience. They are going to want to know how they can access which books, and it would be great if you got out the titles and uh, the availability beyond Amazon.com. So let's do the marketing piece. How can people get in touch with you? Oh, well, I have a website, uh, which is stupidpartyland.com. It's a blog which I haven't had time to write much recently because I've been doing other things, but it's got all, all my writings over the last three or four years. Um, the, all the books, it must be... It's rather weird that I, you know, not be, having done this before, I sort of made stuff up as I went along in terms of the formatting of the book and how I wrote it. So 
it, it really was designed by accident because I didn't know what I was doing to be more of an e-book. So I always, because if you want to fact check anything I'm saying, it becomes seamlessly easy via an e-book. There's just so much, so much material that's linked to the stuff I write about. And so I'm always, when it, when it, when I'm always determined that if somebody buys the print book, I always said this to you, they must be, if, if it's humanly possible, they must have access to the e-book for free. And essentially, I got a professional review the other day who figured it out, who basically said this last book of mine, Deliverance, was the most heavily researched book she'd ever read. And this is a professional book reviewer. But so these are, these are heavily researched books, but you won't necessarily notice that if you just get the print book itself. Now, the term stupid party um, was coined by, uh, I can't remember when, by, uh, by Bobby Jindal. And that struck me. And the moment it was out of his mouth, everybody Everyone knew it was a massive strategic error by Bobby Jindal because, you know, whether smoke, there's <laughs> fire, as it were. I mean, everybody knew it resonated truth. Um, and then the other thing that I do in all three books, you know, because I just elaborate every time, I usually have a chapter called the 67%. Because mathematically speaking, 67% of Republican voters are, and to use the word stupid is, is sort of a polite euphemism. They're not Stupid. Of course they're not. They're no more stupid, actually, than Democratic people. I mean, it's, it's, it's the same thing. But they, almost, they are more susceptible to racism and bigotry and fear and conspiracy theories that we discussed already. So you can actually put a number on that. That 67% is a pretty tight number because on virtually any issue of right or wrong in this country involving politics, um, 67% of Republicans will get it wrong. I bet you if you did a poll today, is, should... Was Mueller right to um, indict Roger Stone? 67% of Republican voters would say no without even thinking about it. So, is, is the, do we have global warming? 67% of Republican voters would say no. Should we have, does trickle-down economics work? Supply-side economics. 67% of Republicans would say no. Did, did Obama... Increase, your ta increase taxes for Americans in, in his 67, well, actually 90% would say yes, when he didn't. The only thing he ever increased was a tax on sunbeds and some other minor issue. Um, and cigarettes, I think cigarettes and sunbeds, there was an extra tax on for health reasons. So, but, you know, whatever question you ask them, when, when a black person gets killed by a police and shot in the back, does that raise racial issues? 67% of Republicans is, you know, would say no. It doesn't raise race issues. They're not thinking. Yeah. I'll give you an example of what polls can say. 20% may be slightly better. In Louisiana, this was several years ago this was taken, a poll asking about the response to Hurricane Katrina I think it was a little better than 20% of Louisianans blamed President Barack Obama yeah, no. for the and tragic I, told, I, yeah, I, I think I have that poll. Yeah, I think I have that poll. I mean, you know, uh, it's just absurd. So to me, a form of racism would be if you, if you choose to believe that Obama was born in, in Kenya and, and, he's, and maybe he's a Muslim. I mean, 51, I think it's 51% of the Republican Party say, yeah, he was born in Kenya. I mean, that's because if you choose to believe something that's verifiably false, and you, you, you have to ask why are you choosing to believe that? Because you don't want a black guy to be president. And by the way, there's racism in the, uh, there's racism in the Democratic Party, and I, it's quite interesting. It's one of the reasons why I sort of, I think Hillary Clinton lost the 2000 ele 2008 election against Obama. She could have taken the high road quite easily. 
But what she, what she did was she went after the racist, with, in my opinion, went after the racist element of the Democratic, the Democratic Party. So when you're campaigning in states like West Virginia, highly rural states susceptible to racism and all the rest, instead of disavowing those racists, because I think there was some, I've forgotten what the percentage was, maybe, maybe 30% of the Democratic voters said they would never vote for a black person. Well, if Hillary Clinton had just used that as a teachable moment, I think she could have won that at that primary the, the, that, and become the, 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 the candidate for, for the Democratic Party. But she chose not to stand tall on the issue, which infuriated me. So you have racism in the, in the, in the Democratic Party, but it's not nearly as blatant as in the Republican Party. It isn't as blatant. And I'm, I'm trying to get my and mind around and why. Over, and overwhelming. And I mean, you've got a president is, of the United States who's clearly a racist, and if you support, if you're enabling him, you're condoning racism. There was this tremendous shift in the Republican Party when I was a parochial school kid. I can remember very clearly how momentous, I mean, as much as I could take in being so young there, but when the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed, and then the Voting Rights Act passed in 1965, in between there was an election. And Barry Goldwater, who was opposed to the Civil Rights Act, not because he was a racist, because I am thoroughly convinced he was not, and there's evidence for that, but Barry Goldwater thought it was a constitutional issue. And so, as a man of conservative principle, he opposed the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Well, as we all know, in the popular vote, he suffered the worst drubbing of anyone in American presidential electoral history, but he did carry the states of the old Confederacy, as well as his home state of Arizona. And mm -hmm. there was the fulcrum. There was that pivotal point which Lyndon Baines Johnson had predicted. Once the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed, he felt that the Democratic Party had lost the South for generations to come. And yep. that certainly seems to be the case. Well, and again, it's all about, to me, to me it's all about Texas. Um, Texas went, well, the moment Texas went red on a long-term basis, the country was screwed. Right now, the, demo, the demo, demographics suggest that Texas will turn blue, blue at some point, and if, if Beto O'Rourke, and I'm not, I'm not endorsing him, this is just strategic, if Beto O'Rourke becomes the, the guy uh, to run for president, and he, get, he, get, he catches on, and he's, he's able to turn Texas blue quicker, um, that would be an argument, assuming he's for him over one of some of one of the other a California or Massachusetts candidate because in my mind and again I'm not endorsing him I don't do that I'm just talking strategy but in my mind the day Texas turns blue is the day that southern racism dies on the vine because mm. you, without those electoral votes the votes of Alabama and and uh, and, and Georgia, not so much Georgia because I could turn too uh, and Oklahoma and all the rest. So yeah. those those states become irrelevant in in terms of the in, in terms of the electoral vote. But right now they're they're this gang and they're a linchpin because of Texas. It's a, it's a linchpin of bigotry and racism that's sort of driving this country. Along with another thing I talk deeply about and passionately about is the fact that 80 percent of evangelicals, which are important key swing voters in many states, support Trump. You cannot be an, uh, a Trump voter and a Christian. And that's why, um, in my opinion, because, and that's why I have a whole chapter about first Christianity, because I think it's really important, because there's a separation of 
church and state in this country, so maybe people don't really study Christianity. So there's a chapter about Christianity and what Jesus is, what he stood for, and how did he, his views, how did he as a person get hijacked by the powers of be to turn a, a, a faith into a misogynist faith? How did that happen historically? I think it's very important for people to understand. You have to go back to the teachings of Jesus to some extent to understand what a Christian is. No, that, that is true. In fact, I have wondered aloud if anybody could possibly imagine Jesus of Nazareth tear-gassing women and their babies across a it's wall or a fence for, for at the somebody border. who's a Christian to vote for Donald Trump. Is Donald Trump and Ted Cruz and, to a lesser extent, Mike Pence, they are the polar opposite of the teachings of Jesus Christ. It's so interesting that you say that, Patrick. I agree with you. There it's the way that I tend to frame it in my own thought and sometimes conversations with people because it feels to me like when, and I, I still owe it to myself to buy a coffee mug because I found it online. It said, Jesus is not a Republican. And I will tell people quite openly that evangelical Christianity in particular, the evangelical right-wing Christians have subverted the Christian message and they've co-opted the man, Jesus of Nazareth, and turned him into the big Republican in the sky. Yeah. And there is no well, through line of thought or logic that can demonstrate the truth well, that, of that to me. That's why it's really important to focus on Jesus Christ rather than on the Bible per se. Because when you have something like Roy Moore saying, oh, the Bible is my, God is my law, the Bible is my law, he's ba basically, when the moment you say that, when you, especially if you're including the Old Testament, you have the ability to choose whatever you want, because the Old Testament has a vast array of, uh, array of different opinions that don't come from Jesus Christ. So the moment you say that the biblical law is above regular law, that's, just, that's basically tyranny, because that person, if they think they have that power, they can choose whatever path they want. And that's just not acceptable. Patrick, one of the things that I found so interesting, especially about that Roy Moore election, was that so many, um, maybe 70% or more, of white Republican women still voted for him. Well, he never made a pass at me, so I'm, I don't think I can well, believe I that. Well, because I think, I, I'm not quite sure if people really have been taught Christianity. Uh, rather right. than, I, think, I, think, I think they've been preached the Bible, and that's very different from being taught Christianity. So the question you have to ask people is, when they, you don't, first of all, you just don't get to call yourself a Christian. You have, you have to earn that, number one. You just don't label yourself like however you want to be labeled. You have to earn any, any badge you're wearing. And, the, and uh, therefore, the question is, you have to ask people, if you're a Christian, by definition, that means you follow the teachings of Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean you... T and Jesus Christ was right there to, to uh, correct some of the distortions of the Old Testament. That was one of his major evangelical missions in life, was to turn things around and make turn a bad a badish God into a goodish God. One of the uh, points that I wanted to make here was that when Roy Moore was defeated, it was in large part due to black female women who came out in tremendous numbers to vote so that they could defeat Roy Moore. And, and so uh, Gary and I were, were um, uh, you know, applauding 
the fact that so many black women came out in that particular election. And what I, the statistic that you have that I, I found utterly fascinating was the number of white, the percentage of people who are white who are over 85 years old is Uh 85%. Yeah. But then you said the percentage of white people under five years old is 51%. Yeah. I mean, there's some really good news in in the demographic changes because I think the younger generation is less trapped by religious dogma. And I think that's what's happened. It's just this antiquated mindset where the brain is fossilized, uh, where you can't evolve, you can't change. And I think younger generations are becoming more di- diverse, in, both in, in every respect. <laughs> They're coming in, in their views about sexuality and their views about marriage and their views about politics and their views about religion. I think all those things are gradually beginning to happen. Let me throw it at you from a little bit different angle in terms of pop culture, Patrick. When I think, and I've never participated in either of these exercises, but if you look at at phenomenally successful TV programs like American Idol, which has been on the air so long, and you look at The Bachelor, people will express their opinions and pay whatever text and data charges apply, and they'll vote over and over and over again for their favorite candidate. They will tell you why certain contestants are better than others. They will give you vocal and even heated opinions about who should win dancing with With the the stars, stars, you know? They have all of this. I only wish that critical thinking skills could acquire the kind of sex appeal that I think it's going to take for us to become a mature society. Well, actually, take popular culture, and you've taken one extreme, and it's not something I follow. I don't follow those programs, but I do follow popular culture, TV popular culture. And really, you know, America's, especially until 2016, in spite of all this massive amount of racism in the country, America was actually cutting edge in many of these issues, in terms, including racism and misogyny and gay marriage. And all. America was ahead of the curve by a long shot. And remember how quickly the concept of gay marriage took on? I mean, back 2000, yes. I, I'm making numbers up. Back in 2000, probably 80% yeah. of people were against it. And now it's probably 70% for it, just making stuff up. It's this yeah. massive watershed mo- change. And America... And, and America's got a lot to be proud of in that respect. And you have to ask, how did this happen? How did America get so enlightened com- relative to other countries? I mean, <laughs> everything's relative in, in, uh, on a mathematical basis. So how did America get so enlightened? It was, it was the writers of the best programs on TV. Uh, whether, you know, and uh, they're, they're the ones educating people. The act, the act, you know, people, why, why is Hollywood progressive? Why are they left-wing? It's very simple, really, because if you're an actor, even if you, have to, even if you play a bad guy or a rapist or whatever it is, you have to get into that character and you have to have some empathy for everybody. If you're playing somebody who's being oppressed by the mob, if you're playing the mob, you have to get into and understand the character you're portraying, the stories you're portraying. And now you look at all the big stories, all the, you know, all the dystopian books, all the dystopian movies, whether it's Hunger Games, uh, whether it's the Marvel series, whether it's, whatever it is, the, the, the moral of the story is usually the same. It's not the pitchfork mob winning. 
it's the, it's the good guys. It's the progressives winning. It's the people who are tolerant, the people who fight bigotry, the people who fight racism, the people who fight poverty. They're the, the, time and time again, they're the salvation of all these dystopian novels, books, and TV shows that we watch. And you would think that the penny would drop. That when everyone's watching The Hunger Games, you'd think people think, well, how did this ever happen? How did, how did society get to that point in time where some nubile 17-year-old has to save, save society? Well, it happened because of Ayn Rand libertarianism, where the wealthy run amok without consequences, without regulations, without laws, and it gradually turns into some sort of, you know, malevolent oligarchy. It happens every time, and it's always the same set of circumstances to create that, which is unregulated, unfettered capitalism. I'm a capitalist. I believe in capitalism, but you have, have to be regulated, has to be modified, has to be monitored. Oh, I totally agree. In fact, I will tell people that I am a capitalist, too. Not noteworthy for my success. I'm no entrepreneur like yourself. <laughs> Nevertheless, I tell people this is how it is with me. I believe in a well-regulated capitalism so that even if honesty in the marketplace has to be enforced through what many call excessive regulation, that's a relative term, I yep. believe in capitalism as a philosophy. Is it perfect? Hardly. It's just better than all the alternatives. So I am a bit uncomfortable, Patrick. I will, I will confess to you. I admit to being uncomfortable when I hear the term democratic socialism because it is very easy in the fake news world in this era of very what, sharp. You should never, nobody should ever allow themselves or use or describe themselves as a socialist within the American context because Americans because, do not understand yes. the term socialist. And if somebody says, am I a socialist or whatever, I have a simple question when somebody accuses you of being a socialist. Or, and should it be an accusation? I don't know. I have no idea within the context of America. But the, 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 the way you deal with that is that, what do you mean by that? Are you comparing me with North Korea? Are you comparing me with Finland? Are you comparing me with the UK? Give me your benchmark for what you yes. call a socialist. And now we'll yes. debate. That's right. And Patrick, what is the word Nazi? National socialist. Yeah. So, so the, these, these labels are really damaging and confusing, and nobody knows what they're talking about. And again, this is the, way, the style of the way I write my books. You know, I write as a sort of nebulous individual. I mean, that's not my real name, Patrick, or whatever. I write as a nebulous individual. You don't see my pictures on, on, in the book. Because it, it, in a way, it's also about Jesus. It's not the messenger that matters. It's the message. Do not attack the messenger. You've got to attack the message if you don't agree with it. So that's why, and, and again, that's why I, I write in such a style as I do. You can't, re, you, you can't accuse me of being an atheist or a Christian. I'm not going to tell you what I am, or a Muslim. I'm not going to tell you what I am, because that's not relevant. That's right. It, it tends to cloud the issues under consideration. In fact, my personal opinion is some of the most honest people in the world are the agnostics because they are not confirmed in the opinion that there is no God, nor are they a believer. They have the honesty to say, I don't know. And as a matter of fact, you don't know either. Well, you can argue that, that, uh, that uh, atheists, if they do an act of good, is a better person than a Christian who does an act of good, because a Christian, theoretically, is only doing an act of good to avoid going to hell, whereas an, an atheist is doing it out of the genuine goodness of their heart. <laughs> you, but uh, going back to, uh, you know, I think you're talking about capitalism, tax policy, or whatever. I, I talk about economics, but I never, I never actually espouse a specific tax policy. But I, but I do say one thing. I said, any tax policy that I would endorse must pass one test. 
and it, you, know, you come up with a tax policy and you plug it into the CBO and see what happens. And the end result of any overall tax policy, I don't mind, must, be, must do something to reverse income discrepancy trends. Because my argument is we had this, we've had this trend going for 40 or 50 years. It's what's leading to instability in all these countries. And America's ahead of the curve, of course. And if you do not mitigate, change the trends, and you look at where it's going to go, where right now you have 0.1, you know, 0.001% of the population providing 50% of the uh, spending on Congress and all the rest, so therefore they're buying their own presidents and all the rest. Until you can mitigate those trends, unless you mitigate those trends, that tax policy should not be endorsed. Well, we we have are, two minutes we are to go. under two minutes, and I can tell you, you have hit my hot button. There it is. With wage disparity and income equality, um, and, and we don't have time to go into that well, we today. we do next Friday. But we will start with that next Friday. Um, I, I can remember many, many years ago hearing that in Europe at that time that the managers made twice the amount of their of their employees. So their their income was two times their employees' well, income. And I was reading a, a proxy statement for um, a company that I own stock in, and it was saying that the, the current uh, CEO is making 435 yeah, yeah. times the median income yeah. in that company. And and I have I have always had the argument, and I will never back down from this. There is no amount of knowledge available to any single individual human being that uh, that says that everything in their head, everything that they do, is worth that much money. It just isn't. Yep. Not not fifty thousand dollars a minute. You know, there is nobody. Who's and worth fifty thousand dollars a minute? They got to go to the bathroom at some point. <laughs> but that goes that goes back to all the nonsense that Republican voters believe. I mean, I've forgotten. What, I mean, virtually, if you say let's have a tax cut, a tax increase for somebody earning five hundred or a million dollars a year, which I'm not promoting right now because I've told you the context of how I do that. But if you would come up with that plan, like I think Elizabeth Warren's come up with a plan to tax people at a certain rate. Yeah, um, Patrick, we're going to have to continue it next. Well, give Friday. us the, give us the ten second version, and we have to go. Yeah, I mean, I mean, uh, you know, I've forgotten that, so move on. <laughs> All right. That's okay, but we'll pick it up, in, including what Senator Warren has to say, and there Next are others Friday. weighing in as well, but we want to hear from you. The book is Deliverance from Stupid Party Land, How to Eradicate the Destructive Forces, Destroying American Democracy. The author, Patrick M. Andenal, will join us next Friday, this time, 10 a.m. Pacific, that is. Hope that you'll join us for part two. In the meantime, stay tuned to AM 1150, the home of Alternative Talk in Seattle. Have a great weekend, everyone. The preceding audio was via a Skype call.